Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And welcome to episode 55. Now, here at the Coffeehouse, we have a few goals. One is to educate you, our listeners, about the histories of composers, and therefore we try not to do repeat composers. Our second goal is, of course, to introduce you to different pieces of music, and often they are the less well-known pieces from a composer. And this week, we're breaking both of those goals, because we're looking again at Richard Strauss, who we talked to you about in March in episode 43, and we're looking at probably his most well-known piece of music, also Sprach Zarathustra, as you've just heard in our intro music. because we have a very good reason. So, of course, this piece was famously used in 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece. And if you've been paying attention to any This Day in History news feeds, you'll know now that we recently passed the anniversary of the first moon landing. July 16th was the day that Apollo 11 lifted off from Cape Canaveral in Florida, lasting until July 24th, 1969. We missed the release, of course, by a few weeks, but we hope you enjoyed learning all about Mozart during that time. <laughs> now, it's a rare treat that music and science can fit so well together, so today we're doing something a bit different, and instead of giving you a brief overview of the history of Strauss again, we're instead giving you a brief overview of the events surrounding the moon landing and then taking a look at Strauss's immortal tone poem. And remember, if you would like to hear that history of Richard Strauss again, go ahead and check out episode 43, where we do delve deep into his history. So, let's start with our moon landing story. To understand the events of the moon landing, we do need some context of why we were trying to go there in the first place. The reason is, of course, the infamous space race that started in 1957 when the Soviet Union launched their satellite Sputnik, which meant the Russian word for traveler. And America was, was, was taken aback by being upstaged by the Soviets. And in 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower created NASA for both space exploration purposes and national security purposes, which makes this 2018 the 60th anniversary of NASA's founding. Then, in 1961, the Soviets pulled ahead in the race again by sending Yuri Gagarin into orbit. And now the U.S. was mad. So this was a great time to rally the people together around a national cause, and the now president, John F. Kennedy, proclaimed that by the end of the decade, the USA would land on the moon, and thus started years of testing and discovery of the Apollo program that eventually led up to the events of the actual moon landing. 30 seconds and counting. The year is now 1969, and it's July 16th. All the preparations have been made, and the Saturn V rocket is ready to send Apollo 11 into space with a three-man crew, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, backed by legions of scientists in mission control at the Kennedy Space Center. 10, 9, 
Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. All of America watches the launch on TV, and you can relive that historic moment on YouTube right now. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners have witnessed that news coverage firsthand, might have some strong memory about it. And in an age where the possibility of people living on Mars is talked about in pop culture, I can only imagine <laughs> much of what it must have been like to live in a time where space was just an abstract thing in the sky and suddenly we were sending people there. We literally had no idea what it was like up on the moon except our calculated predictions. By July 20th, the astronauts had been surfing around space for three days before they had finally traversed the 238,900 miles to the lunar orbit. This is where things get interesting. At this point, the crew had to separate, so Armstrong and Aldrin got to head to the lunar surface in the lunar module called the Eagle, but poor Michael Collins had to stay in orbit in the Columbia Command Module. Now, the goal location for lunar touchdown is the formation called the Sea of Tranquility. And note, there is no liquid water in this sea. There is, of course, some unexpected computer issues and some creative problem-solving that had to be done by the astronauts. And by the time the Eagle finally safely landed, there was only 30 seconds of fuel left in the module. And on July 21st, 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first man to set foot on the moon, with Aldrin following right after him. Of course, we know Neil Armstrong's famous words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Buzz Aldrin went on to describe what he saw as he stepped onto the moon as magnificent desolation. They then spent two and a half hours romping, learning, collecting, and doing experiments on the moon, being the first people to ever set foot on another stellar body. And in the grand scheme of the whole mission, they didn't spend all that much time on the moon itself. Soon after they finished, they climbed back into the Eagle module, blast off from the moon, and docked with the command module Columbia, being re reunited with Collins, who unfortunately never got to step foot on the moon. But as he was orbiting it on the far side, he was the furthest away from Earth that anyone had ever been, even Armstrong and Aldrin. They then made the arduous journey back to Earth, which was another three days. Finally, on July 24th, they splashed down into the Pacific Ocean near Hawaii, completely alive and having fulfilled Kennedy's challenge of the decade. They then were put into isolation suits, just in case the moon had harbored any strange and unfamiliar germs that we would be completely susceptible to here on Earth, and the conclusion was, apparently, there were no such germs. And then, in a light-hearted conclusion to this miraculous week in space, the astronauts had to go through customs in Hawaii, and they declared their moon rocks to the officials. So now, let's listen to some of the most epic music ever written that pairs nicely with such an epic space adventure, such as traveling to the moon. Richard Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. Now, this piece was composed by Strauss in 1896, and it's one of his most famous tone poems, meaning it's just like a highly programmatic symphony. Strauss had just become the conductor of the Bavarian State Opera in Munich when the work was to be premiered, but unfortunately, people in Munich at the time 
thought that Strauss's colors were too crazy and uncouth. So he traveled with his music to Frankfurt instead, where the public was a bit more adventurous with their listening. Now granted, this piece is a lot to handle. It has nine sections that are played one after the other, with titles based on the book Thus Spoke Zarathustra, written by Friedrich Nietzsche. So these sections are Sunrise, which of course everyone has heard. It's the most famous part of the piece. It's then followed with the less known parts, which are of the forest dwellers, of the great yearning, of joys and passions, dirge, of learning, the convalescent, the dance song, and finally ending with the night wanderer's song. Recall that of all the romantic composers, Richard Strauss was really not all that crazy. And as a result, <laughs> that it has been theorized that the jaunty waltz that finishes up the piece in The Dance Song is actually a goofy homage to Johann Strauss, who is, of course, unrelated but well-loved by Ricard. While we could try to compare the book to the progress of the music, it's really not necessary. It's even difficult to do because Strauss claimed his music was simply inspired by imagery in Nietzsche's book, not by the actual plot or ideas. So we will just appreciate the piece for itself. Now, as we mentioned, you of course know this fine introduction. It starts with an almost inaudible drone on a sea. And then, as the sun begins to rise, the trumpet announces it with a simple C-G-C quasi-arpeggio. The rest of the orchestra then comes in, as a response to the trumpet's triumphant call with a downward modulation to an A-flat 5-7 chord. giving the music a sound that casts some doubt on our triumph and builds anticipation for what's coming next. And as this introduction goes on, it gets more and more grand, adding instruments and everyone's favorite counterpoint. We get magnificently voiced chords in the rising lines and lovely downward moving accompaniment. And finally, the orchestra plays along, joining the trumpet in C major. Now this introduction ends with an organ sustaining the final chord. And nowadays, this is made possible with the use of electronics, but when it was first written, it may have been hard for some orchestras to perform this piece because of lacking such an instrument in a given performance space. Well, it seems like Strauss could easily have made each of these sections unique, since they are describing vastly different moods, he actually makes a really good effort to unify the entire piece. So in the third section, The Great Longing, there is an underlying three-note motif that harkens back to the trumpet's melody in the Sunrise Introduction. We also hear this motif in the trumpet again at the beginning of the dance section, accompanied only by the trilling clarinets. At the end of one of the intersections, 
convalescent. The sunrise theme comes back, and this time, if anything, the orchestration is even more grand. And finally, Strauss ends this piece with the basses playing, again, an almost inaudible C, just like at the beginning of the work. As programmatic as this piece says, perhaps a sunset. There are a few other melodies of note throughout this piece, too. In the Joy and Passions section, the melody is unique due to the mixing of triplets and 16th notes, and also interesting non-chord tones. It gives a very modern sound to this section. Interestingly, Strauss repurposes this melody effortlessly into the dirge section, transforming it by including line upon line of downward-flowing chromatics. in the convalescent section, he does a similar technique of mixing eighth notes and longer triplets to make a rather stilted sounding melody. Strauss is also very clever in the section of learning. He's written a fugue. This musical form, since it has so many rules, is a very good musical representation of scholarly activities, since it takes a knowledgeable person to write one. This one comes from a rumbling start in the bass section. Out of this extravagant fugue comes a jaunty springtime melody, perhaps to show the joys of attaining knowledge. Now the transition into the dance section is very strange sounding. There is a lot of very quiet action with little solos here and there. There's lots of blurring chromatic lines and obscure rhythms that dissolve into nonsense. (laughs) 
However, the dance section itself is very calm, quaint, and cute, with a fun bubbly accompaniment in the oboe and a folksy violin solo. When we reach the final section, the Night Wanderer, things really take off. There's a lot of fluff in the background with various woodwinds and strings playing frilly arpeggios for effect. The low strings and brass once again take center stage and play the jaunty melody of the Night Wanderer. somewhat folksy violin, still suitable for this rogue character. And from here, the whole piece winds down to the end, perhaps as we mentioned before, as a sunset, and the night wanderer wanders into the night. We hope we've helped you explore the lesser-known reaches of also Sprach Zarathustra that lurk beyond the familiar sounds of the sunrise. And we hope you enjoyed our science-based history lesson about the moon landing. So if you enjoyed this mixed education, we would very much appreciate it if you would share this episode with a friend or two who likes science or music or whatnot. And also rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you very much for humoring us, and we'll be back again in two weeks with an all-music episode for you. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Alsis Rock Zarathustra was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. The Apollo 11 mission recordings were provided by NASA. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram to share our episodes with your friends. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.